Good morning. Um, well, let's open with uh, prayer. Our Lord, Almighty God, and our Father, the only Father we have ever known in the deep and permanent and true sense. Lord, you have given us many things. You've given us birth into physical life, uh, perhaps a parent or parents, perhaps uh, siblings. You've given us maybe a little money or a little health for a little while. And today we gather, we who are gathered in your name, anticipate a greater pouring out of your spirit upon us that the eternal life that is promised might be made more real and uh, and uh, that, that the eternal life might, um, that the Holy Spirit, who is the free gift of the water of life, might well up in our spirits resulting in eternal life, of course, but that we might experience a deeper and greater and sweeter fellowship with your spirit now, and therefore uh, deeper and greater and more pleasant fellowship with one another. We pray for power to... Um, see our sin. We pray for power to war against the sin that the flesh loves. We pray for power to have hope in him who has overcome, who has overcome sin and the devil, and who reigns forevermore, and who even now is interceding for us on our behalf standing at the right hand of the Father praying for us. And it is him we have gathered to worship. Please open our mind to understand this scripture. We thank you for Romans chapter 6, and we pray that the reading of Romans 6 today would be a bondage breaker. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. You have a special guest speaker Next week, he's not here today. His name is Daniel Williams. He'll be preaching on Romans 6, I think, 50, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Today, we're going to set him up for a home run. Today, we're going to look at, in our study of Romans 6, we won't go too deep. We're going to focus on three paradigms or perspectives or lenses through which we must look at Romans 6 or else we will not understand it. So, if you're taking notes, please do. Would everybody except for Sydney please write down the following? Sid, you don't have to. Trust me, you're not going to forget it. <clears throat> Salvation, identity, and dominion. If we don't understand biblically, those are Sydney's initials, that's the joke. If we don't understand Romans chapter 6 through the lens of what is biblical salvation? And biblically, what is our identity? And biblically, what is dominion? And what does that have to do with us? Then it's very easy to make the mistake that we will see in a few moments. Without further ado, I'm going to begin a couple of verses back at Romans chapter 5. Remember we talked about the first Adam and the last Adam. We talked about the family tree. We all descend from the first Adam and therefore we're all born in sin. Like it says in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Not saying my mother was in sin when I was conceived, but rather everyone is a sinner from the womb, right? And then we talked about Christ who powerfully raises from the dead all those who were born spiritually dead. And all of us... Uh, rise to the Father because of him. A different kind of family tree. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. Remember, um, like if there's no line to cross, you didn't cross the line, right? The law came in to increase the trespass, which is like crossing a boundary. 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice those words, sin reigned and grace reign. Reign has to do with dominion or rule or kings and kingdoms, right? A king and the members of that kingdom. Okay, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We're going to come back to that. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Duh. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Okay, so think about it. Who wants to be a slave, right? Nobody raises their hand, okay? Um, so somewhere in there the analogy breaks down. But we've got to use the language even though it's natural language. But Paul says, bear with me. I'm speaking in human terms. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
for the end of those things is death. Remember this morning, Stephen talked about the, the telos, the, in Greek, the end, right? It means the end goal or the end result. Like this is the trajectory on which one may be headed. The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, thank you, Lord. Remember our study of Romans chapter 1. We talked about the righteousness of Christ. We said the gospel is all about Christ and his righteousness and being united with Christ. And therefore, his righteousness and his holy life fills or spills over. Or uh, like Jesus, when he touched the leper and Jesus didn't contract leprosy, the leprous man became cleansed. When he indwells and lives in the believer uh, completely and through and through, both from that moment through life and ultimately after passing through the door of death, we are united with him in resurrection life so that his life works its way all through our spirit, soul, and body as individuals and a community of Christians so that we are saved. So, one possible error we can make when we read Romans chapter 6 is to think, um, I'm saved, so it doesn't matter. And we'll get to that. Paul is saying here that's a poor understanding of salvation. And I think if we can revisit what it means to be saved, Romans 6 will come alive to us and be more practical to us. You see, here's what we do. We read Romans 6, and it says then, you know, like Paul is trying to persuade us, it does matter what we do. And one of us might be over here thinking, I got saved, I am saved, I was saved. But then here, Romans chapter 6 is talking about a process of salvation and something that results in salvation. And that makes us stop and rethink, wait a second, am I being saved from hell to heaven? Because if I got saved and I'm saved from hell and I'm going to heaven and that's all the Christian life means, then it's hard to argue against a person who thinks that and convince them that it really does matter whether or not you sin a little or sin a lot, isn't it? That's, a, that's kind of an impasse, isn't it? Well, that person has a wrong view of salvation. So let's look at that. Another possible error we can make when we read Romans 6, as, as the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul, and he's saying, Stop sinning because you died to sin and you've come alive in Christ and the result of holy living is the salvation of your souls and the end of being on that trajectory is eternal life. So therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. One possible error we can make is to read that and be like, okay, I can do that and let your life, let your idea of working out your Christianity be trying hard not to sin and trying hard to do right and be holy. So that's a piece of the pie, but, we, but if that's how we think of Christianity, we've missed the big picture. In fact, our arrow has landed so far away from the bullseye that we will ultimately miss the target if we're thinking that way entirely. So 
the, if, we, if we thought that way, that I need to try real hard to not sin and try real hard in my own strength to do what's right, and that that's what Romans 6 says, we'd be missing the point of the chapter and of the whole book and, of course, the Bible as a whole, and we would have become Pharisees. But righteousness, when we talk about the righteousness of Christ in the gospel, righteousness has less to do with doing the right things and more to do with being of one heart and mind with God, which always results in bearing fruit of righteous living. When we read Romans 6, we could say to our, well, let me back up. We have said that this book is not primarily theological, it's relational. When we read Romans 6, we could say to ourselves, okay, I could do that, or I could try harder, or we could embrace our new identity in God. And that is what Romans 6 is about. It's about a change in identity. If we try hard to be righteous, and that's it, by our own strength, we will end up being both unrighteous and unloving. If we seek him first and answer his call to discipleship and belonging, we will find him and his righteousness. Romans 6 may not make much sense to you if you have a popular evangelical understanding of what it means to be saved. So we said, it's common for a person to have uh, a sub-biblical understanding of the gospel and of salvation. They, people may think, I believed, therefore I got saved from hell, and now I'm going to heaven. And that tends to result in a life full of sin, a life that, uh, that where the person isn't understanding their identity or their calling. And if you think in the way that, Romans, that Paul is thinking in Romans 6 about what salvation is, um, the life of God will lead to holy living. Paul says in, uh, in verse, uh, let's see here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, stop there. Paul has just used the word death and compared baptism and the salvation event to, to completely leaving everything behind like the disciples did when Jesus called them by the sea. We can't think of salvation as getting saved, like I got saved, I was saved. But when we take on the more holistic biblical understanding of salvation as, um, as both having been justified and of being saved from something that isn't hell, but it will result in being saved from hell, then we will be thinking biblically. Paul here is talking about He's talking about being saved from myself. So think about how the, the disciples by the sea were saved, as we say, when Jesus called them. He called them, he said, follow me. And what was their answer? Did they say, well, first let me go take care of some family affairs. I gotta, you know, take care of, I gotta see to my father. And no. Did they say, well, yeah, teacher, we'll follow you wherever we go, wherever you go. And did Jesus say to them then, well, you know, foxes have uh, holes in the ground and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. No. Or 
did they come to him first and say, what must I do to receive eternal life? And did he say to them, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and then come follow me and you will have eternal life? And then did they go away sad? No. Those are all examples of people who did not follow Christ. But too much of the time, our, our thinking about being Christians really looks like that. And that's what I want to challenge today. When Jesus called them by the sea, on that day and in that hour, they left their nets and their father and their boats and they followed him. And they went with him wherever he went and they became children of God. But every morning after that, for all the years they were with him, and after his resurrection and ascension, every day they had a chance to go home, didn't they? So that call of Christ was a one-time altar call where they had faith in their hearts and they believed that, God would, that if they trusted him, God would raise them from the dead. They did that day, but they also continued in that faith every day, like the faith of our father Abraham, who we talked about last time, right? It says Abraham didn't waver in his faith. He had lots of chances. Um, so every day the disciples woke up and they had a chance to go back. What I'm saying is that every day they heard the call of Christ to continue with him. And every day they maintained, they continued to leave everything and follow him. Salvation, biblically, is less of a one-time altar call and more of hearing Christ's call to leave everything and to daily hear his call and go through the gospel process every day and to daily take up your cross and follow him. And there are a lot of different kinds of crosses we have to bear. But salvation is living and walking in and keeping in step with the Spirit. And the end goal of that is the salvation of our souls. So if that is a biblical pattern of discipleship or of salvation, what then were the disciples saved from? When I read that, how the disciples answered Christ's call, I don't come away thinking they got saved from hell and now they're going to heaven. That is like a minimalistic, reductionist, it's, it's missing Christianity entirely. Yet most of us were raised uh, uh, in that kind of thinking. I was. And I went to a good Christian church, you know what I mean? With good people who loved the Lord. And that kind of perspective was the perspective I ended up with. But biblically, salvation is from what? Christ was saving those disciples from themselves. When Adam said, in high-handed rebellion in the garden against the Lord, Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned, and he said, I think I'm going to decide for myself what's good and evil. And that is what we need to be saved from every day. We need to be saved from belonging to ourselves. The, the most popular religion in America today is, I create my identity, I determine my destiny, and I'm a good person. And we might even, some take that to there's something divine in me and there's something divine in you, which is like a counterfeit, uh, like false religion version of we're all created in the image of God, right? And, and the outworking of that kind of thinking is that you can't tell me what to do and I can't tell you what to do and you can have your opinions and they're right and good because they come from a good heart. I'm sure you mean them sincerely. And, and I the same. And, and nobody can tell me what to do or have dominion over me. Right? 
salvation is from being ruled by our flesh. So let's look deeper at what the scripture says in Romans about what we're being saved from in ourselves. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So, body here. I have a a physical body. It's got arms and legs. It's got members, right? Um, And body, the, the body into which I was born has a part, a part of my being or essence that is called in Romans the flesh. It's not just that part of me that isn't under the control of Christ. There's something in me that has passions and desires, and I can be enslaved to my passions and desires. In American culture today, that's kind of a good thing. You know, they say, follow your heart. Uh, At my Bible college, there was a thing right over our cafeteria uh, serving line, follow your heart and your dreams will come true. And I remember looking at it and kind of squinting funny and thinking, that's not biblical. Well, it's so, that's a false religion, and it replaces Christ with me. And that's what Adam did in the garden. And that is, there's something in me that wants to replace God with me every day, even after I got saved, so to speak. And every day, what Christ is saving us from is from that thing inside you and inside me that will be there until the day you die that makes you every day want to rise up in rebellion against God and have your own way and decide for yourself what's good and evil. So we've talked a lot about Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. In that verse, heart, and the word Paul uses for this thing in me that needs to be killed to which I may be enslaved, that God is saving me from, has saved, is saving me from, and will save me from through and through, is my heart that is deceitful above all things. It's my flesh which has passions and desires. That doesn't mean here that everything a person wants or, or passionately desires is bad. What it means is that there's something in me that darkly, selfishly, um, manipulatively, controlling, abusively, using others, using God, using the world around me to satisfy myself, that's, that's in me, and it never goes away until you die. That's why Paul says, those who have died have been set free from sin. Sin is almost synonymous with self in this sense. Sin and, and flesh and the heart. There's this thing in me, Romans chapter 8, um, Romans chapter 8, verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. So the flesh, that part of me, that is, uh, there's this thing in you and in me that is hostile to God. That's what the flesh is. It, this may be much darker and more evil and insidious than you were taught in church growing up, right? Or, or we don't, part of the reason for that is not that we weren't taught it, because most of us heard the Romans road, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Most of us sat under that teaching if we grow up in church. But my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And it's always trying to cover up its true motives and deceive me and others. And my flesh 
being hostile to God. So that means there's something in me that is an enemy of God. There's something in you that is at war with God. And it's at war against you. So there are like two, it's like two animals fighting or two people locked in a, in a fight to the death, right? But there's another person in my spirit, and it's Christ. And Christ, when I set my mind on Christ, when I seek first him and his righteousness and his kingdom, the end goal of that is that I don't obey the flesh with its passions and desires. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So it's not that I was saved, I got saved, I am saved, in the sense that that's all I need to know. Otherwise, we're going to have to have Romans 6 preached to us again and again and again, and we're not going to get much from it. We're going to be like, well, yeah, I can sin, I'm saved, right? That's, a, that's an error in our thinking of what salvation is. Salvation is salvation from me being my own Lord, Master, and God. Me having the right to determine my own destiny and set my own course in life. It's salvation from my sinful motives, desires, and passions. It's salvation from being self-deceived and also self-condemned. It's salvation from loving lawlessness and hating God. It's salvation from being hostile to God. In justification, our sins are taken away. That has to be practically worked out on a day-to-day basis of, of confessing and renouncing sin and finding mercy. And that's called sanctification or being made holy. We were made holy. We are being made holy. When we die, our bodies will be sown into the ground and raised and transformed into glorified bodies, and there will be no more sin, there will be no more flesh in our glorified bodies once we rise and are with him in his presence forever, if we're on this trajectory, right? In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So it can't be, biblically, that I was just saved, once saved, always saved, in, in like this very small, and there's nothing more to it. Salvation has, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. The Bible has a bigger vision of what salvation means. And Romans 6 helps us to flesh that out in practical living, especially if we have a biblical vision that God wants to save my whole spirit, soul, and body. He wants all of me. Salvation looks less like answering an altar call and more like hearing the voice of Christ day after day after day and walking with him. Does that mean maybe here and there I'm faithless? What does the scripture say? Like, does that mean I lose everything? Well, Peter, um, after Christ was crucified and raised from the dead, one of his first thoughts was, I'm going fishing. And he tells some of the other disciples, I'm going fishing. Faithless. I'm going back. And so he goes back to the Sea of Galilee, and he's out fishing, and it's there that Christ comes to him. This is why there are verses in the Bible, like in uh, Timothy, where it says, "If if, if we disown him, he will also disown us. 
if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So this brings us into our second point, our second lens through which we have to view Romans 6, our identity. Romans 6 is not spoken to people who got saved and you're trying to persuade them, stop sinning and be good, and the response to that isn't, okay, I'll try harder now, right? That's not even Christianity. It has some echoes of Christianity, but shadows of it, but it's not the real substance. Your identity is that you're not your own. You're bought with a price. I have to go through the gospel process and remember that every day, right? I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. And it goes on, therefore, honor God with your body. You were made for God's glory. That's a statement of identity. You were created by Christ Jesus for Christ Jesus to be a son or a daughter of God, to be a brother or sister of Christ, to be a joint heir with him of salvation, leading to eternal life. That's the picture of eternal life that Romans is trying to bring out. And hell is, most of us probably have a less than biblical understanding of hell. Hell, there's, it, you know, Jesus uses the term the hell of fire, but he also talks about being cast into outer darkness. And it's those who are already born in sin and who are separated from the life of God alienated from the commonwealth of the people of God who are on a trajectory that leads to never being united with Christ. And if you're far from him, you're far from his presence. So if you're on that trajectory, then the end result is you're, you're living in separation from God and the result of that is eternal separation from God. That gives us a little bit more full understanding of the biblical vision of what hell really is. It's eternal separation from God. It's eternal indulgence in the flesh where one may be angrier and angrier about the things they used to be angry about. Where one is more and more firmly convinced that I've just got to get my own way. And it's like God will give you that. You can have your own way right? But the result of that is death. And when we were living like that, what fruit did we get at that time for those things of which we are now ashamed? The time that is past suffices for living as it says the Gentiles do, as those who are separated from the life of God do. We've had enough indulgence in the flesh in the past. God is saving a people who belong to him by renewing our mind in the word, by the power of the Holy Spirit in relationships within the church to, to every day go through the gospel process by the renewing of our minds, remembering and then living out, bringing, putting, putting, putting shoe leather on it, walking it out. Um, the, the new identity we have in Christ that we belong to him. That's why the letter of Romans opens up with Paul, a bond servant or a bond slave or a once and for all committed, devoted servant, and it was my choice. You made the choice to follow God when you, say, answered that altar call. But the call is all about the caller, and it's about rightly being rightly related with him day by day in such a way that you're renewed in your identity. And so we make it our aim to please him because he is our father, a father like we have never known before. The father who is perfect. The father who is righteous and blameless and in whom there is no fault it's the father we always needed. 
All of the good things about our earthly fathers are echoes of who he is. And united to him through his son Christ, we become, uh, the, the response isn't like a business transaction where, you know, the wages of sin is death, but, uh, but I got, I'm saved in Christ, and so I'll, you know, I owe him about this much because he paid that much. It's not a business transaction. It's a relationship into a family, into the family of God with God our Father and Christ our brother. And the response of that is gratitude. The natural response to Christ get to the free gift of God is warmth, affection, gratitude, and that grows into love. And out of being rightly related with Christ and being renewed in the image of our Creator every day comes holy living, the holy living that Romans 6 is talking about. And because we still struggle with sin, the Bible includes verses like, what we will be has not yet been made fully known, because sometimes I don't look like a saint. And because we still suffer, the Bible talks, Romans especially, gives us great hope for when we suffer. For if we suffer and are united with him in a death like his, we will surely also be glorified with him and we have this sure hope of a resurrection like his. The natural response to that isn't, good, I'm off the hook, I'm not going to get punished for my sin. The response to that is warmth and affection and gratitude. It's kind of like becoming human. It's becoming the humans we were created to be, personal and personable. And it's the warmth of our Heavenly Father's affection and the outstretched hand and the call of Christ that is ours to respond to every day that brings us into fellowship with Him. And in fellowship with Him, our hearts are renewed and we respond in faith and we love Him and we worship Him and it says we always do what pleases Him, right? And that is what we're being saved from and what we're being saved to. And that is our new identity. Rethinking salvation, rethinking identity, day by day. And then, finally, dominion. In Romans 6, we see the word reign and the word dominion again and again. It says, One who has been died has been set free from sin. We will live with him. Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign. That means rule, have dominion over, or control. To make you obey its passions. Verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. That means you're not stuck under the condemnation that the law brings to those who transgress or trespass the law. But I am under, one might say, undergirded by grace and I'm empowered to love him. What we're being set free from in verse 14 is from being slaves to self and to the sinful desires that live in me, to desiring Christ, to desiring God, and therefore willingly slaying as, uh, as a beast with a spear, putting to death that thing in me day after day that wants to have me. Like it says, uh, like God said to Cain in Genesis, he said, Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, or have dominion over you, but you must master it 
but you must take dominion over it. And as you read Romans 6, that's what it's about. Um, we're going to summarize here. I'm going to kind of skip ahead. The theme of dominion and reign is repeated in Romans 6. And why is that? Is that a new concept in the Bible? Or has that been a main theme from the beginning? Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's called the command to take dominion or the dominion mandate in, in theology. So the people of God are to live in the world and to rule over all aspects of creation in Jesus' name for him on his behalf, for his glory, reworking the raw materials of creation until it is a cultivated garden in all the earth partly physically, literally, and partly in all areas of science and medicine, in all areas of, under, of government and economics. This is the dominion mandate that never went away to which we Christians are called. And when your expectation is that you are part of a team, a family, a people, called out of the earth, called out from among all nations, to be his holy possession. That's your identity, your belonging in him, and your community. Christ our Father, God our Father, Christ our brother, us brothers and sisters in every generation. And now we have a job to do, and that's what Romans 6 is about. It's not a pietistic, there's, sin, there's sinful desires in me, and I've got a overcome them by my strength, it's the, the biblical vision of taking dominion is Christians taking dominion over sin, over the devil, over the whole world, and our expectation should be that all nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Christ, and that means by Christ through his people. As the gospel is exported into all lands, and as the world is Christianized, not in other religions at the point of a sword or, or by killing those who are your enemies, but rather by first me in my home every day answering the call of Christ and praying through the Lord's Prayer, Father, your will be done, your kingdom come. Your will be done as it is in heaven. How do the angels do God's will? They just do it, like the disciples at the seashore. So as we pray a prayer like the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis, we're working out our salvation, and we're being renewed as his image bearers, such that in my thinking, in my feelings, in my heart, Christ is the boss and the God and the Father, and I his Son. Affection warmth, gift, free gift of God that he continues to give me every day, even as I answer his call every day. And the result of that is eternal life. The dominion to which we are called has to be fleshed out in our lives, and in our lives that ebbs and flows a little because sometimes, like Peter, we are faithless. And yet, he is faithful, for he cannot renounce himself. Because our new identity in him is that he's written his name on our foreheads and on our hands, and that we belong to Christ. So my job in my family, as a father and a, as a husband, is to first answer the call and welcome the rule of Christ, the authority, the dominion of Christ with no qualifications and not waiting any amount of time to think about it or to give him any, well, because my wife didn't, I'm not gonna. It doesn't work that way. So my job as a family man and your job as somebody who lives in a house with others is 
to welcome the reign of Christ in you. And that has a fantastic spillover effect throughout your home as you welcome the presence of God, not just pietistically in a spiritual sense, but that, but also in how you speak to your children, to your spouse, in what thoughts you allow to remain in your mind. If Christ isn't saying them, you need to kill those thoughts. If Christ isn't speaking that kind of thing to my wife, then I'm not going to speak that way to her. If Christ isn't that kind of father to me, then I'm not going to be that kind of father to my kids, and I'm not going to demand or, or relate with them in a way that God doesn't relate with me. It's God's dominion being manifest in me, in my home, and us as a, fa- a multi-generational family, bringing the dominion of Christ to every aspect of schools, culture, economy, the arts, literature, science, um, every, every part of the world, being Christ, me being an image bearer of Christ and actually an ambassador to him, bearing Christ in me, both through the ups and downs of life and suffering and temptation and confession and repentance of sin, me daily, and the church as sometimes we suffer under great oppression and sometimes we enjoy something that, more look, that looks more like Christendom where culture flourishes and Christianization bears like, like flowering trees bearing fruit, more fruit than it had in other times in history. That has to happen more and more. And that's what we're working towards. When you view Romans 6 through the lenses of the biblical view of what we're saved from, of what our identity is, and the dominion to which we are called, and that command, that dominion mandate was never rescinded. It must continue until Christ has his way everywhere. Right? When you view it that way, it will be easier to respond in faith as you read Romans 6 and consider yourselves dead to sin. So your homework is to read Romans 6, slowly, thoughtfully, and through the lenses of the biblical view of salvation, biblical view of your identity, and biblical view of the dominion mandate. For there is no part of the world over which Christ doesn't cry, mine. And you are Christ, if indeed you are in him. And you, your job is to bring that reign of Christ into all the world and to let Christ reign over your sinful passions and desires and that flesh, that terrible thing that lives in you and slay it. Amen. Thank you.